It's from the book of Psalms. Please join me in the responsive reading. Whom have I in heaven but you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Our New Testament reading comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, and verses 46 through 49. Hear the word of our Lord. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he called, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became the traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come from sorry who had come to hear him as he and to be healed of their diseases those troubled by evil spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all looking at his disciples he said why do you call me lord lord and do not do what i say i will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice he is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck the house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. This is the word of our Lord. Thank you to God. Let's return to the scripture that we read with Becky just a few moments ago from Luke chapter 6. If you're visiting with us this morning, again, we're glad that you're here in our morning worship as we come to God's word. We have been in a study for the last six months in the gospel according to Luke. We started with the birth narratives uh, that are so beautiful in Luke uh, during our Advent season and just continued. We find ourselves in the sixth chapter. The sixth chapter is about, contains two subjects that, that fit together. The first subject is Jesus 
call to his disciples, naming specific disciples. And then he gathers those disciples with a larger group of those disciples, and he teaches, he preaches this great message that we call the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew, it takes up chapters 5, 6, and 7. In Luke, it's it's abbreviated uh, into a shorter version uh, in the sixth chapter. Those two things go together. Here are disciples, and then Jesus begins to lay before them the foundation, the constitution of his kingdom. In the last few weeks, looking at this Sermon on the Mount, we've seen that Jesus' kingdom is upside down. In fact, that's been always involved in the title of our messages. This morning, Jesus' upside down kingdom, an unshakable place to stand. This is how this is how Jesus closes this great sermon. He comes to the end of his message, setting for this constitution or Magna Carta of his kingdom. And he is shown with every part of this message that his kingdom will operate just the opposite of the way the world operates. And all the different kingdoms of the world, how they operate. He says it will be an upside down kingdom. It will seem upside down. He is literally taking the lives, the thoughts of the disciples. And he's turning them upside down in the way they are to live in his kingdom. For instance... The way to God. He begins with that, with what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. He said, the road to God, the way to God, the way to joy, the way to true happiness, when the world looks at it, it will not look that way. It will will look like a road. The world will say, we don't want to take that road. He said, the road that the world wants to take is really... A path that doesn't lead to happiness, but leads to misery. He said to his disciples, the way that you will choose in your relationship to God will be a way the world will never choose. Then he he talked about how how they would relate to their enemies, because they would certainly have enemies. He said, in in my kingdom, instead of cursing those who persecute us, we will pray for those that persecute us. We'll actually love those that persecute us. We'll actually do good to them. Talking about something that is upside down. Can you remember after you became a Christian, the first time you really understood that Jesus said to you, love your enemies? What was your response Oh, of course, Jesus, that's real easy. I've done that all my life. What did you do? He said, are you kidding me? It's different. It's upside down. Then he said, he talked about how we'd relate to each other. You know how brothers and sisters and family, we all blame each other. What did Adam say to, to God? 
Eve made me do it. And we, we do that. We still do that. We point our fingers at each other and blame. And Jesus says, no. We will be magnanimous with the sins of our brothers and sisters because we too are sinners. We'll not judge. All this is just the opposite of the world. Then we saw where he said, my kingdom. It's not about an outward moral reformation. The moralists, the Pharisees got it wrong. They said, we, we got to clean up our lives. That's not a Christian message. For this kingdom, this way of life doesn't begin with an outward moral reformation. When I first began to listen to preaching in the church as a boy, that's what I thought the church was telling me. That's what I thought the gospel was telling me, that I needed to clean up my life. I need to live better. The message of the gospel is you need to be born again. You need to be changed from the inside. Any lasting, permanent, heavenly change doesn't begin on the outside. It begins on the inside in the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, in every religion in the world, it's about moral reformation. Not Christianity. It's about a spiritual transformation. The upside down way of living. Well, how will Jesus close this dynamic, powerful message? This life changing, earth changing, world changing message. How will he end it? He talks about the security. Of standing in his kingdom. Saying if you stand here. Your life will be unshakable. That's the title of the message this morning. Jesus upside down kingdom. An unshakable place to stand. Let's pray together. Now, Father, this is the one time of the week when we're gathered as priests. And this morning, we do bow before you, remembering our calling and praying together with each other for Laura Berryman, for Priscilla Turner. Father, these two ladies are in difficult places. We pray that their lives would be powerful in your gospel. Powerful in the resurrection. We pray that you would bring healing. But most of all, we pray that you would fill them with your spirit. We thank you that Jim Bennington is here this morning. We thank you for him, for his faithfulness. That is a witness to all of us. Our father, not many of us know Doris Beasley. But we lay her before you this morning and we pray that you would bring healing. To her. Bring healing. Use these treatments. To put an end to this cancer. Our father. Your son spoke the words. That we read a few minutes ago. He spoke them to those disciples. And he turned their world. 
upside down. We pray this morning that you in the power of your spirit will speak these words to us, disturb our lives, turn our lives upside down. And Father, we pray. We pray that we will say with Joshua when we hear this truth, we will say, as for me and our, my house, we will serve the Lord. We will build our lives on this unshakable rock. In Jesus' name, amen. First, I want you to see in this passage that Jesus was saying to his disciples, and this is most important, he was saying there is absolute, unchangeable truth. Look at verses 47 and 48. I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. He was saying when you build your life, upon these constitutional principles of his upside-down kingdom, your life will be not only a testimony to all these other things, loving your enemy, being magnanimous with the sins of your brothers, but he said, also, your life will be set upon a solid foundation that will make you immovable. We need to hear that. In our world, where everything is relative, in our postmodern world, where we hear every day, there's no such thing as absolute truth. You determine your own truth. Do you understand that Jesus has, with these words, has looked the world in the eye and said, that's a lie. You don't determine your own truth. There's only one person who determines truth, and it's God. He says there is absolute unchangeable truth on which you can build your life. You'll be like a man building a house on solid rock. This afternoon, go home and look in your concordance. Concordance lists all the words in the Bible. In the word rock, you'll find verses like these. If you have your scripture sheet, look at it. Psalm 18, 2 and 31. Look what he says. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock. What's he saying? He's my foundation. Look at verse 31. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except? God, there's only one rock. His name is God Almighty. Look at Psalm 19, 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. Psalm 27, 5, for the day of trouble, for in the day of trouble, he will keep you safe. Notice, he will keep you safe where? In his dwelling. Well, how secure is that dwelling? If this trouble is so serious, 
He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle, and he will set me high upon a rock. And then my favorite in Psalm 62. What a great psalm. Verses 1 and 2. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock, and my salvation is my fortress. And then he adds these words. I will never be shaken. Jesus had those verses in mind when he said, when you live your life on this upside down way, you'll be like the man digging into the earth to build his house until he comes down to solid rock and there he lays a foundation. You'll be like that person. It was absolute truth. Remember the conversation between Jesus and Pilate? You remember Jesus is facing death. He's facing crucifixion. And with one of the rulers of this world, he has this conversation. Look on your scripture sheet in John 18, 37. Pilate says, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. For this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What a statement. What was Pilate's answer? Look at it, verse 38. What is truth? Pilate asked, and when he said this, he went out again. Pilate asked Jesus, quid est veritas? What is truth? Our generation, this present generation, is saying, est veritas? Is there truth? That's why this message is so crucial. Two weeks ago, when I was seeing where I would be this Sunday, I was sitting in my study and I read this. And it just shouts to you. Jesus is saying, there is absolute truth. Steve Turner is an English journalist. He wrote about a culture refusing to believe in the existence of God. He wrote about a culture refusing to believe that there's absolute truth. Listen to these words that he wrote. This is what he was saying about the culture. He says, our culture. This is what he's saying about us. This is what he's saying about the Mid-South, our culture here. Because do you understand that most of your neighbors in the Mid-South, the majority of the people in the Mid-South say there's no such thing as absolute truth. And this is what he wrote. If chance be the father of all flesh, and that's the only answer. If there is no God and there are no absolutes, then it's just chance. If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. Like, you know, the rainbow that God gave saying, I'll not destroy the world with the flood again. This is the rainbow. The rainbow of chance is disaster. If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is the rainbow in the sky. And when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills 10, youths go looting, bomb blast school, it is but the sound of man worshiping his man, worshiping chance. 
You may think this is ridiculous. You may be sitting there saying, oh, John, I believe. I believe what Jesus said. There is absolute truth. If you're a parent here this morning, you're raising elementary age children. You're raising high school age children. You're raising youth. You're raising college students who are bombarded all day long through television, through their schools, through some schools, through most schools. They're bombarded with this word. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Jesus is shouting into our world, into our culture. This is good news. You have a place to stand. In 1948, the Jesuit philosopher Frederick Copleston held an open debate excuse, with the, 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 the Jesuit philosopher. Now, this is a, a Christian philosopher. And there was a debate, debate held with him and his opponent was the atheist Bertrand Russell, the mathematician, philosopher, atheist. In that debate in 1948, Copleston asked Russell the great question of the 20th and 21st century. He said, Dr. Russell, if there is no God, if there's no absolute moral laws from God, how do you differentiate between right and wrong? How do you decide what's right and wrong? That is the greatest single question of our day. Russ, you know what Russell answered? Russell answered that he differentiated between right and wrong on the basis of feelings. How I feel. In his answer, now hang with me. In his answer, he was being intellectually inconsistent. If he had been intellectually consistent, he would have had to say there would have only been one answer. There is no God and therefore there is no right and wrong. There is no right and wrong. There's none. That's the only answer for the atheist. It's funny how men... How people resist saying that out loud. They're all too willing to say there is no God and there are no absolutes. But you ask them, what about right and wrong? And there's very definite feelings about that. Feelings. But they refuse to say that. It sounds too hard. There's no such thing as right and wrong. I would have answered Bertrand Russell's intellectually inconsistent answer by reminding him that Adolf Hitler killed six million Jews because he felt it was right. Do you think this message is not important? It ought to be a core message preached constantly in the church of Jesus Christ. There's absolute unchangeable truth. Secondly, I want you to see this absolute unchangeable truth is knowable. Look at verse 47. 
I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. Here's my words. You can actually hear and know what is truth. That's what Jesus was saying. Now, some people will say, I'm not an atheist. I'm not going to say there is no God. There may be a God. There may be absolute truth, but it's not knowable. It's impossible to know if there's a God. There's such a thing as absolute truth. You can't know that. What do we call that person? An agnostic. Where does that word come from? The Greek negative is ah. Ah something, it says no or not or non. Well, it's joined with agnos, gnostic. That comes from the Greek word gnosko, to know. And it says not know. You cannot know. Well, there may be truth, there may be God, but we cannot know. Jesus says, you can hear these words. You can hear the word of God and know what the truth is. That's why we're people of this book. That's why we're people of this book. Because we can know it. It holds the truth. This is God's word. Go back to that conversation Pilate was having with Jesus. He said, quit S. Veritas, what is truth? And what did he do? He walked out. He threw his arms up and said, what is truth? Jesus says, I'm here to tell you the truth. All men who seek the truth, seek me. Pilate, what is truth? Walks out. Look at that picture. He's walking away in that scene from the one person that could tell him the truth. The one person that is the truth, Pilate's walking away from him. What a scene. People, we have a place to stand. And it's not hidden. It's knowable. There's a rock on which to build. And there's no mistaking who it is and what it is. There's absolute unchangeable truth. This absolute unchangeable truth is knowable. Thirdly is, and lastly, Jesus is saying to his disciples, the appearance of an individual's life can be deceiving. Look at verses 48 and 49. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. Now, you can't see a foundation, can you? You look at a house and you can't see a foundation. You see the house. Both men built houses. Both houses may have appeared to be the same. In fact, the man who built his house on the sand may have a house that's actually more elaborate than the man who put his house on a rock. 
Here's the 21st century secularist, humanist. Been married for 30 years. Has three children performing well in school. Has a wonderful job and house. Three cars. Strong retirement plan. Here's a 21st century Christian. He's been married 30 years. Like the secularist. Has three children who are performing well in school. Has a wonderful job. Beautiful house. Three cars. Strong retirement. Appearances can be deceiving. In the museum in Deadwood, South Dakota, there's the note that a prospector wrote about his awful predicament. This is what the note reads. I've lost my gun. I've lost my horse. I'm out of food. The Indians are about to get me. But I got all the gold that I can personally carry. It reminds me of the modern secular man. I've lost my ethics. In fact, I don't have any. I've lost my character. I've lost my soul. I live in the middle of chaos. But I have my family, my house, my car, my clothes, and my retirement. Appearances can be deceiving. You see, what's the issue here? The issue is not what's built. It's what the foundation is. But there's a second issue. The storm. The storm is the issue. When the storm came, the house without the foundation could not stand. What happens? When storms come, when the money is lost, I watched a friend about eight years ago during Great Recession. He was brilliant. He was well off financially, very well off. Worked hard. Had a good business. And I watched him in less than a year lose everything. Lose everything. Lose his business. A very good business. Lost his house, 
lost his cars. Lost everything. Remember Job? Job lost everything. This man did not lose his children, but Job not only lost everything, he lost all of his children. None of his children were left living. But Job had a place to stand. And he stood. And through the tears, through the crying, through the hardship, he was unshakable. That was a testimony of my friend also that lost everything. He's teaching Sunday school in the church. He teaches with his wife. Teaches a child Sunday school class. What a testimony. A storm came. And he was not shaken. David wrote about this. This is where we'll close. In Psalm 73. Read this psalm over and over and over again. It, it, it's a, a parallel, a corollary to what Jesus was saying in this sermon. In Psalm 73, look at verse 2. But as for me, now David is writing, a man of God is writing. As for me, look. My feet had almost slipped. And then he added, I nearly lost my foothold. I nearly lost the place to stand. That's what this psalm is about. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. And then he skips down to verse 12, Psalm 73, 12. This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in their wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocent. He's saying my life has been trying to live this godly life, but it's all been in vain. And then he comes to verse 15. Look at it. If I had said, I will speak thus, this is the way I'll speak. I would have betrayed your children. When I, under, when I tried to understand this, it was oppressive to me. And look, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. The storm comes. The storm comes. And they don't have a place to stand. Go back 
and look in your bulletin right now. The call to worship. You know, in our worship, we try to fit the whole service together in the liturgy. Look at the opening two sentences of the call to worship. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you'll find rest for your souls. That's where you build the house. And when the storm comes, you may lose a lot, but you won't be shaken. We say, maybe those storms won't hit my life. Well, I doubt it. Storms come to all of us. Very few can live through life untouched. But there is the greatest storm of all to be faced. Not just death, but judgment is coming. What was it that James Baldwin wrote at the end of his book? God sent the, ra- sent the rainbow and told Noah, no more water. It'll be the fire next time. Where will you stand when that fire comes? When death comes? When judgment comes? You see, the Romans threw the Christians into the Colosseums, and then they gathered by the thousands to watch them being torn apart by gladiators and lions. And the Christians stood in those Colosseums, unshakable. The Roman Empire fell to Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. When the storms come, you have a place to stand. When death comes, you can look at death and say, Death, where should you stay? Grave, where's your victory? To live is Christ, to die is King. And then you stand before God in the Holy of Holies, before whom the angels cover their faces. Then you're a sinner from planet Earth. Who can stand there? Who can stand? But Paul stood there, the chiefest of sinners, like you and like me. And he said to God and all the court of heaven, Who can bring a charge against me? For Christ has died. He stood at Golgotha. He stood underneath the cross. And that is a foundation that not even the judgment of God can shake. There's only, there's a few hymns that we could sing. The one that I've chosen is how firm a foundation.